I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, From the Odyssey to T.S. Eliot, a conversation on the influence of sailing in literature and poetry with poet David Rigsby. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s, and crossed the Atlantic countless times. A published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Hey Todd, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Can you tell us what today's episode is about? Um, today I'm, I've done an interview um, with a very dear friend of mine. Uh, we go back, I think, until 1975, although some of those years are blurs, um, with my very, very, very good friend, David Rigsby. Uh, he's the author of uh, 20 books and chapbooks and 10 full-length poetry collections, and he's published and won all sorts of prizes, and he's one of... Uh, He's one of America's, you know, better poets, best poets. I don't know how you measure um, art in that regard, but I just love David's um, insight and his work, um, his pace. Um, so I decided to uh, give him a ring, and uh, we had a little interview um, to talk about a tradition um, of poetry at sea. And for those of you that don't know, um, poetry has been for a very, very long time, a very integral part of sea stories, of being on boats, of recitations. Um, poetry is always a very important, um, aspect of sailing, especially long distances. And so David and I discussed some of the, some of the really uh, genuinely interesting poems, um, the sort of capture and um, you know the the feeling of being a sailor and sailing across the ocean. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. But I was thinking there was uh, there was an interesting quote. Well, first of all, let me just say, well, thank you, David, for uh, for doing this. Um, I think it's a really important thing to bring the analysis or some insight into the words that sort of float across the sea uh, for years and years and years, because um, a lot of sailors have the same sort of poetic instincts, I might say, you know, about wanting to get out and feel the the wind and the sea and you know the earth's rotation and the stars and the moon and there's that that sort of area that uh, mm -hmm. an emotional area that people are in so it's nice to be able to to look at uh, some some work and some poetry that um applies to that area all around i agree uh and i would add that it's hard to conceive of the history of poetry in any language 
that doesn't contain some um, anchor, if you will, uh, in the sea, in the imagery of the sea. Um, this goes all the way back to Homer, of course, uh, who wrote two epics, as you know, mm -hmm. uh, which is the Odyssey, which is about sailing home from a war. Uh, sailing for 10 years, in fact, with a crew, uh, and uh, during which uh, he uh, has to fight uh, tidal waves and monsters uh, and the drowning of some of his sailors, <clears throat> and finally is able to return home uh, where he has to fight his final battle, which is, uh, which is to kill all the suitors who tried to replace him. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't as if he was without comfort when he was away, while he was away either, by the way. Uh, but the faithful Penelope, of course, is, uh, comes into play. One interesting thing about Homer, and this is a, there's a famous poem by uh, Tennyson, the British 19th century poet, about, uh, about Odysseus coming home uh, and wanting to go back out again because he was bored. Because what happens when he comes home is he has to resume his kingship it's really more like uh, it's really more like a bureaucracy you know he's always uh, entertaining settling disputes and giving out uh, prizes and meeting out punishments and stuff like that he just he's bored by office work right. so he set out one more time with his companions and go across the sea to go as far as they can across the sea uh, that's, that's his last, sort of his uh, last wish is to, to be free to go back on the sea, even though he spent 10 years uh, recently uh, coming home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, well, it's, it's, actually, it's actually quite interesting that that 10-year ten uh, journey in the Eastern Med yeah. is actually quite hard to do. If you've sailed, I've sailed the Eastern Med, and it's, it's very difficult to spend 10 years doing it, Unless you're stopping a lot, do you know what I mean? But but they were actually rowing, yes. so they did not cover a lot of ground. I mean, in a literal sense, they did not cover a lot of ground. In fact, it took approximately six months for um, the Phoenicians to go from somewhere in, say, Lebanon, which is where they come from, um, and row all the way um, to Spain. And that would be going along the coast because they would row, then they'd yeah. stop, yes. and they'd go. So I think when you look at Homer from like more of a, pra a practical concept, you know, and you look at, okay, here's a collection of these incredible stories that uh, take place during this 10-year trip, but this exceedingly long trip, um, when, in, when in fact it's... Uh, you know, you could. You, it's not ten years; it's three months. You could pretty much do the whole shoot and match, mm -hmm. but uh, it just gives it a different kind of perspective about what it is literally to do. Exactly. I think part of his problem too is was that uh, uh, Poseidon was not on his side, and so he kept throwing up obstacles. So either uh, there were obstacles in the way that the gods imposed mm -hmm. them to, to, to waste a lot of time, or he ran into. Uh, some woman who fascinated him, and he decided to hole up for a while. <laughs> it so, it, it but, sounds it sounds like life. <laughs> yeah, it does. Well, you know, uh, I I was thinking about uh, some poems in the 
in the English tradition, in the English language tradition, mm-hmm. I guess probably the most famous of that, uh, one of the most famous certainly, is the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Yeah, uh, it's a poem uh, written by Coleridge. Uh, he uh, apparently finished it sometime between 1897 and 1898. Uh, and it, it's the tale of a, a man who uh, goes all the way to Antarctica. You can imagine what that's like in 1890, mm-hmm. so to there. And he's come back, and he has a tale to tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his rhyme is his tale. And what happens on on this uh, journey is, uh, and by the way, it's full of all kinds of supernatural things. So he's, he's very gothic that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes there. Uh, he uh, he. At one point, uh, as they're getting near Antarctica, uh, an albatross shows up, and uh, the sailors befriend the albatross. Apparently, it becomes quite tame. But one day, the ancient mariner, uh, who I gather is not all that ancient when he starts out, but it was ancient, becomes ancient because of his. <laughs> uh, I can well I can well imagine. Uh, he actually shoots. The, he kills. He kills the uh, the albatross. He shoots it, uh, and uh, immediately all all the sailors get mad at him, and they hang it around his neck as a punishment. Mm-hmm. Which is where we get the expression, you know, I have an albatross around my neck, uh, and bad things start to happen. Uh, all the sailors come down with some mysterious illness, and they lose their spirits, uh, leave their bodies, like a virus. Uh, and not only that, but the, the wind stops. And so the sea is completely uh, still. They can't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. They run out of food and they run out of water. Uh, and there is a, a little passage that everybody has heard uh, day after day, day after day, we stuck, nor breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. That's very interesting. We're like a we're like a painting. Mm-hmm. We have no more movement than a painting does. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. Okay, and everybody knows that little quatrain there. Mm-hmm. It's quite an interesting. It's quite an interesting poem. It's long. Uh, it was when it first came out. It became immediately famous because it was included. Uh, in the original uh, uh, book called Lyrical Ballads that he published with his friend, his good friend, uh, William Wordsworth, who became Poet Laureate uh, later. Uh, and at first, uh, callers didn't want to include it because they thought it was kind of a jumble. And it does read that way sometimes. You have to be in a certain frame of mind, as a matter of fact, because it's filled with such uh, uh, strange imagery uh, some of the language is kind of rocky, uh, but uh, Wordsworth wanted to do it because he thought it was, it was wildly imaginative, mm-hmm. imagining things that you don't encounter, uh, one doesn't encounter in one's life, uh, ghosts, uh, demons, uh, well, going to Antarctica in the first place. Yeah. The only other writer who uh, wrote about going to Antarctica was Poe. Uh, right. And so that's very interesting. But anyway, uh, Wordsworth insisted that uh, it be included in uh, the first edition of Lyrical Ballads, which I believe was 1811 when it came out. Um, and uh, so Coleridge went along with it, and it really made him. 
it was the longest poem in the book. And uh, it, I think it was in, in the, the last one in the book, too. So it was a kind of uh, um, in a privileged position. Yeah. And, uh, anyway. It would be very, it's very interesting, the fact if you couch that in the, this 1811 was mm -hmm. really the, the middle of the age of sale. Yes. And, and this was the, 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 the nobility of the captain, um, the organization, especially, uh, through the English Navy, which, by the way, was mimicked by every other Navy that existed at the time, the Spanish Navy. Um, the Dutch, the French, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very interesting that, that the organization that they put into to manning these ships, which had 350 to 450 men on these ships. I mean, the Constitution, which everybody knows in Boston, um, that they, they sailed with over 300, with 350 men on that boat. That's a so yeah, because you had to you had to be able to fight both sides. You mm -hmm. had to be able to sail the damn thing, yeah. uh, which is very complicated. And you had to be able to man the guns. That was the big thing. And it would take between six and eight people. So the contrast of the poetry and the fantastical nature of the Rhyme of the Mariner is is almost in a weird way. It's kind of the below the deck um what I call below the deck kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. Whereas as the captains and their lieutenants and the people on the bridge, okay, they're very organized and, you know, no rumors, no fantastical stuff. It just go, 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 you know, in a kind of rational way. But the people that are under the decks before, before the masses, they would say, were filled with, with, superstition and and crazy stories and all those other kind of stuff and so when you look at the rhyme of the ancient mariner you kind of see that that kind of coming out in coleridge's writing you know like this below the deck kind of craziness yes. that killing an albatross which in the southern ocean there's tons of albatrosses i mean that's where they live right and and then having that be an omen all right and eventually a part of the English language um, is a kind of interesting uh, uh, connection that people can make as far as being on, you know, my audience can make as far as that's concerned. So, well, uh, from the run of the ancient mariner, you mentioned the, uh, the English Navy. Uh, and this is certainly something on the mind of John Keats as well, the second generation uh, of what we call romantic poets. These are poets basically from uh, uh, the late 18th century to almost mid-century, 19th century uh, poets. And basically everybody knows the names uh, Blake and Wordsworth and Coleridge in the first generation, mm -hmm. and Lord Byron, uh, Shelley, and John Keats. And of course, John Keats is, 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 uh, is a very special case because he died when he was 26 of, uh, of uh, tuberculosis. Uh, <clears throat> He, he uh, has uh, a, a wonderful sonnet that's quite well known called, called On First Looking into Chapman's Homer. Chapman uh, was an Elizabethan uh, poet uh, who translated uh, Homer uh, into English. Uh, before the Renaissance, uh, 
it was not widely uh, Greek classical Greek literature was not uh, widely uh, available because um, learning at the time privileged Latin over Greek. Mm -hmm. uh, so you you get a lot of uh, Virgil and so Horace and those kind of people, but you wouldn't get Homer. So the, one of the things that George Chapman did was to translate uh, Homer into English, and it was very readable, widely read. And what's interesting about Keats's poem is that the metaphor he uses is the metaphor of sailing among islands mm -hmm. and, and discovering something. And he says, he begins by saying, Much have I traveled in the realms of gold, and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been, which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Oft, as often, of one wide expanse had I been told that deep-browed Homer ruled as his domain. Yet never did I breathe its pure serene till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. Then I felt like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken, or like stout Cortez when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. Now, there's a lot one can say about uh, this. Well, it's a sonnet, 14 mm -hmm. lines, alternate rhymes. Um, he's saying that I, I often heard that there was this thing, but I couldn't experience it until this mediator, this translator, came along, and that was George Chapman. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says, I didn't understand how noble, how great, and how huge this series of tales, these poems were, these epic poems. I didn't understand. It's like being, it's like hearsay. I yeah. had I heard it was great, but I didn't realize, I didn't really feel it until I read this version by, by Chapman, and then I understood the enormity of Homer's influence and everything that came after him. Mm -hmm. He does this, he does this, as you see, by saying it was like I was going around from here to there, from this book to that book, like going from one island to another island. Mm -hmm. Or, as he says, uh, like when a new planet, this, he, he says it's recent, uh, the discovery of Uranus had recently taken place and sort of caught everybody's attention that there are more planets out there for us to literally discover. Mm -hmm. That's his first comparison. His next one is with Stout Cortez. Uh, as everybody points out, it actually wasn't Cortez who discovered the Pacific. It was <laughs> it was Balboa. But nonetheless, you get the picture. Yeah, he was a, a Spanish uh, conquistador. Uh, Balboa was not Cortez, but anyway, the man he's talking about is the guy who uh, discovered the Pacific Ocean uh, in Panama, which mm -hmm. is where Ecuadorian is. And then he stared at. He says and. He says uh, they stared at the Pacific with a, with a wild, with a look of wild surmise, which is a, a kind of like, can you believe what we're looking at? <laughs> like, like literally crossing a hill and suddenly there's an endless ocean. Yeah. They didn't know it was there. They come, and the surprise of that reduces you to silence. Yeah. And you, but you still have your eagle eyes. You know something's happening to you. You have nothing to say anymore. Mm -hmm. You certainly can't, can't know what could you say that would be 
uh, equivalent to uh, 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 the equivalent to saying something meaningful about what you just experienced. It was literally beyond language. That's one thing. But the paradox, of course, is that uh, Keats actually gets a, 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 an immortal sonnet out of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. He has. He has. His, he, he gets to have his cake and eat it too. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, I like that. I love. I love the uh, the wild surmise. I don't know where he got that phrase from. With a look of, yeah. they looked at each other with a wild surmise. But you know how it is sometimes when you uh, find yourself in a meeting, let's say a, a committee meeting or something of that sort, and somebody does something completely unexpected and shocking, and people are reduced to silence, so they can only dart looks at each other, mm-hmm. surreptitiously even. Uh, there's some of that sense in. Uh, uh, Chapman's Homer too. So all he's saying is that I've, 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 you know, it is, it's, it's a poem about becoming a poet. Right. Like understanding the enormity of literature. Mm-hmm. And it's all, almost like a declaration of devoutness too. But suddenly I, mm-hmm. I got, he's saying I got real. And I got real by being imaginative or understand, right. understanding the imagination in another way. So he talks about, he talks about time in terms of space, for example. Which I, I've always found is an interesting thing. Uh, they're such completely different dimensions, and they're, they're mirrors of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've traveled, but he's only been, as Blake would say, a mental traveler. Right. He, he didn't travel in the realms of gold. In fact, he didn't travel very much at all. Although I will tell you this about John Cage, which is very interesting, and you probably know it, that he and his brother uh, had uh, made plans to move to Pennsylvania. Uh, and they weren't able to do that because his, his brother died. Of tuberculosis, which is why, which is how John Keats uh, contracted uh, the same disease. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know he was taking care of his brother. Um, so he never got to go to Pennsylvania, but when he, when he was determined that uh, he couldn't live in England any longer because it was too damp, he literally moved to Rome, which is where he died. Mm-hmm. His, his friends uh, started a GoFundMe. Uh, for John Keats, spent <laughs> his remaining days in Rome. Yeah, I've seen I've seen where uh, the place where he died. Yeah, and so his grave is there. Yeah, very very interesting. So he actually didn't do any traveling until he was practically on his deathbed. Right, and then he really couldn't enjoy the traveling. I know I've been I've been there too. As, yeah. as, as well. So yes. Rome is a is a is. Rome is one of those places that um, I should do a podcast on Rome itself um, because it's like every five feet there's something amazing. Amazing, I know. So and you, you know, go like, oh, this is I know this. I mean, the stories are just like chalk. They're just like like uh, like a mound of stories, you know, like bodies of stories, stories and stories at every corner. It's really quite amazing. So I, uh, I know that. So everybody understands when you understand this poem. And the point is describing a kind of understanding that everybody, uh, every, not everybody, perhaps, but most people have had the experience of being thunderstruck by something that you didn't ex- expect that changed your whole world. And that's what happens uh, in this poem. Uh, I was thinking about that in terms of uh, uh I live just a few miles from the Hudson River, and it's in fact the widest part of the Hudson River. It's 3.4 miles across, which is a heck of a long way. And it's mm-hmm. just a few miles up from the Tappan Zee Bridge, mm-hmm. 
been renamed the Mario Cuomo Bridge, by the way. Oh. But um, uh, in fact, the Dutch, uh, the Tappan Z, the first name is the Tappan C. So wide that they said, well, let's just go ahead and call it, you know, it was a river. Let's just go ahead and call it the sea, call, call, call it the Tappan Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was reading about uh, Henry Hudson himself, uh, who was a uh, uh, an early uh, Dutch explorer, who was actually looking for the uh, from whom the, the river is named. Of course, Hudson was looking for the Northwest Passage. Exactly. Yeah. Sailing, you would finally get to the Pacific. He didn't find it, of course. Uh, and in fact. Uh, there was a mutiny on his in his last uh, uh, trip, which was to the Hudson Bay of all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After him, uh, his uh, his crew said, "No, we've had enough. It's too cold, it's too arduous." Uh, and so they mutinied, and they uh, apparently, uh, well, we don't know exactly what happened to him. The, the thinking is that he was thrown overboard, along with his son, no mm-hmm. less. So he uh, he ended up in a in a bad spot, but I ended up in a good spot because I'm near the Hudson River, which I see every single day. And the right. behind the house here it goes down to the river, and all all the waters here did feed into the Hudson, which is a beautiful river. Right. And I mention this because uh, the, the other the other thing that comes to mind when I think of the uh, of, of, of the Hudson is I think of Walt Whitman. Oh yeah, absolutely. Walt Whitman uh, wrote uh, a wonderful. One of my favorite poems of all, uh, because it's a very haunting poem called Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. And it was a, not much of a, it's actually uh, not the Hudson River any longer, but it's the East River on the east side of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. It's over from Manhattan to Brooklyn, which is a little bit south. Uh, right. Southeast, right. And what's nice about this poem is it seems to speak to you from, uh, from the beyond. You know, it's got that kind of, he's uh, really talking to the future. He's saying that. Is as I'm talking to you now, I know who you are, you know, which is a very uncanny way of, of talking. Uh, he's what he's what he's trying to say is that your experiences, whatever you have, are ones that I had too. You should always remember the fact that the fact that I came before you, and the fact that uh, you succeeded me, doesn't mean that you erased me. That we're all connected. Uh, and his way of doing this is to. Uh, to write a long poem with sort of uh, hypnotic cadence to it. Uh, many of the lines begin the same way. For example, I have a little, just a tiny excerpt here. He says things like, Others will enter the gates of the ferry and cross from shore to shore. Others will watch the run of the flood tide. Others will see the shipping of Manhattan north and west and the heights of Brooklyn to the south and east. Others will see the islands, large and small, Fifty years hence, others will see them as they cross, the sun half an hour high. A hundred years hence, or ever so many hundred years hence, others will see them, will enjoy the sunset, the pouring in of the flood tide, the falling back to the sea of the ebb tide. It avails not, time nor place, distance avails not. I am with you, you men and women of a generation or ever so many generations hence. Just as you feel when you look on the river and sky, so I felt. Just as any of you is one of a living crowd, I was one of a crowd. 
just as you are refreshed by the gladness of the river and the bright flow, I was refreshed. Just as you stand and lean on the rail, yet hurry with the swift current, I stood, yet was hurried. Just as you look on the numberless masts of ships and the thick stem pipes of steamboats, I looked. I think that's a, uh, uh, that, that's a wonderful, uh, uh, wonderful, uh, haunting uh, way of talking to the future, as if he's sitting here. And I, I think the other thing too about that is, is that this, his, not only is he, he, he talking to the future, but people in the future are experiencing, he's, he's saying, hey, you're going to experience the same things I'm experiencing, so we're connected in that. Exactly. And I think what happens is people in the future, okay, are also connected with that because they're feeling the same thing. It's that sort of universal feeling exactly. that, that, we, that we have, that the that, that water kind of brings about to us. I know it's kind of, sort of an interesting thing. My first impression is, is when I hear the, um, uh, the tap and Z, my, my dad, when he was a very young, young engineer, um, worked for a concrete company that poured concrete for the Tappan Zee. So he had sort of a minor hand in, in building that particular bridge, which is sort of kind of interesting. Um, I think he was still in graduate school and he was spending his summers up there as a quote unquote civil engineer. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but there, there, that's the past, right? And, and then we're, we're looking at it because the river, the rivers just keep flowing. And I think for, for a lot of uh, people trying to relate to what they're, I think what's important about the poetry, especially, uh, uh, is that it's giving a it's giving a language to understanding what's happening on the ocean, okay? Yes. And mm-hmm. it's it, it's multi-dimensional what's happening. I, I've often talked about the 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 idea of of uh, as the program is is offshore explorer, which is in a sense the the sailor, or in this case would be me, um, is living in in on a, is on a boat and sailing. So there's there's really no past because there's nothing we can do about changing the past, right? right? Mm-hmm. And there's there's only a waypoint, which is the future. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and you're at a, you're at a particular pace in a particular sort of physical environment, right? So all you have is the present. So yes. that really refocuses your mind on precisely what, um, you're doing. So poetry, um, brings a language to that experience. Okay. That allows you to look at the quote unquote land world. All right with with uh, much more critical eyes and and a much better understanding and it's interesting how poets over time have all seen and done and written essentially from the very same couch so to speak mm-hmm. right or settee as we would say <laughs> in the boat world right mm-hmm. and and this this is what's fascinating about you know the these poems and how they relate to us just as as crossing the Hudson, right? Or, yes. or as the tugboat captains would call it, the North River. So, so you're right. It, 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 being on the sea, it avails not time nor place. Distance avails not, he says. Mm-hmm. What I like about the, 
the crossing crossing Brooklyn ferry pond, is that um, he is saying, in essence, I can imagine who you are because I know who I am. Mm-hmm. So you're saying yes, there is that connectedness. So you have there's no more. If you believe that, then you also believe that the past isn't erased. You know, he's saying that I I will imagine you in the future. You're going to do these very things. You will look at the at the ships sailing on the river, mm-hmm. just you just as I do. Uh, and that's also a way of saying that you're not warranted, therefore, to forget the past any more than uh, it's impossible for me to see the future. I can see the future, he says, because I I, I know what it is right now in the present. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is, as you say, it's a universal feeling. There's a thing, quite a different matter when we get, when we're actually moving a little bit through time here. Uh, this, the cross, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry Poem was written four years before the Civil War. Right. Um, and about the same time, Matthew Arnold in England wrote what uh, is certainly one of the most famous poems of the 19th century called Dover Beach. Right. About the sea. But it's actually about, it's actually about the rise of... Uh, of the secular world, and the secular world uh, actually shoving uh, spirituality into the background, gradually. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, it begins uh, on the coast, on the south coast of England, Dover, which is, is, you probably, well, you certainly know, probably all your listeners know, is... um, the uh, basically the closest that England gets to France, across mm-hmm. and you can actually see it. He begins the point by saying, "The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full. The moon lies fair upon the straits. On the French coast, the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand, glimmering and vast." out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window. Sweet is the night air. Only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land, listen, you hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand, begin and cease, and then again begin with tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in. And at that point, he, he leaves, he, he starts talking about ancient Greece. He begins by saying, this reminds me of what Sophocles said, uh, that, you know, the world is a sad place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he leaves the, uh, he, what he does is he actually uses the, uh, the sea as an image of that which surrounds us, in this case, it's the ability to believe in uh, something transcendent. Basically, he's also talking about the fact that Darwin came in and suddenly Christianity uh, looked different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and believing in uh, uh, gods and, and so forth uh, was something that uh, caused a lot of people to squint and say, uh, it, can it be that Darwin is correct that we weren't uh, uh, created 
all at once, but rather uh, we were created over millions of years and that we all came from, you know, basically some sludge someplace. <laughs> and, and so, and this, and, uh, and Arnold, of course, uh, uh, the poem by basically freaking out over the very thought. And, mm-hmm. and just as, uh, just as Keats, uh, suddenly had the experience of finding something super real that he didn't know existed before, that is to say poetry, uh, Matthew Arnold suddenly has this, 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 this idea that maybe we, if there isn't a God, then we are left alone. As he put it, like armies clashing in the dark. Right. Yeah. We're just, we're ignorant. Uh, we don't know what we're doing. We're not, we're not, we may be motivated, uh, but we're not directed. And we're not following a script. It's all random. Right. Now, which, what's interesting which the, here, the lack of order is the crazy. Lack of order. Which, which you need, which you certainly need if you're sailing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the sea is calm, but then he realizes that the sea of faith, on the other hand, is not calm. Right. Uh, meanwhile, he says, come to the window. So you realize there's somebody in the background. And it turns out that he's uh, with, with his uh, wife or lady friend. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. by the way, there's a parody of this poem, a famous parody of this poem by, uh, by, uh, Anthony Heck called the Dover Bitch, <laughs> and uh, and basically uh, what Anthony Heck says is, well, we might as well just you know have some whiskey and go to bed. What do you right. say? You know, and it turns out that uh, in Anthony Heck's poem, that the person he's with is actually turns out is actually a, a sex worker. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Matthew Arnold is saying that uh, he he ends the poem by saying basically because everything is random. Therefore, we need to be true to one another. Mm-hmm. That's all we have to hold on to. It's just a thread, but it's, it's the thread that he offers. You know? So mm-hmm. this, is, this is a poem that kind of blows a warning uh, across culture. That it's, it's saying that uh, it may be that the, the sea of faith is going to become the, the secular sea. Mm-hmm. It might end up being the wild sea of the Rhine of the Ancient Mariner, for all we know. Right. You know? But it's not that it's not the, the solidity of equally shared faith across the culture. Rather, it's one in which we discover, we discover, we discover. And one of the things that we discover is that we that our, our very existence is a random happening. Right. If that's the case, then how can we be moral beings? We won't be moral beings. We'll just be like armies crashing uh, against each other in the night. Right. It's interesting. And, and yeah. the, you know, very very uh, a few years after this, Tennyson. Who, uh, who was a believing Christian, wrote Crossing the Bar, which is one of his. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, the bar, in this case, is a sandbar. And he's using it as a metaphor for leaving life and crossing over into, in this case, the ocean becomes, uh, uh, you return to nature. You die. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go into death. <clears throat> but in his case, uh, in Tennyson's case, he hopes to, when he crosses the bar, that he meets the pilot. And the pilot, of course, is, you know, the Lord. Uh, so Tennyson says, and this has to be, a, in, a, in a sense, a rejoinder to Matthew Arnold's skepticism. He says, and, and we, we might call it weak tea. You know, say, the world is going to hell in the handbasket, so you and I may as well hold, hug each other a little harder. Mm-hmm. You know, come on over here, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and and what's the, what Tennyson is saying, no, I'm hoping I still have faith that it might be otherwise. So mm-hmm. he's sunset and evening star, 
and one clear call for me. And may there be no moaning of the bar when I put out to sea. But such a tide as moving seems asleep, too full for sound and foam, when that which drew from out the boundless deep turns home again. Twilight and evening bell, and after that the dark. And may there be no sadness of farewell when I embark. For though from out our born of time and place, the flood may bear me far, I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar. All right. So that's a, he's a raising the flag uh, one last time. We're trying to do it one last time. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is interesting. It and, is. and what 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 is it? What's interesting too is in, in just a, a technical point, um, getting the idea that he's looking the pilot face to face to see God face to face. But uh, if you were going to cross the bar, you'd rather have your pilot with you before you attempt to cross the bar, Good point. because that's their expertise is to know where to cross the bar and Good. when to cross the bar. Very good point. Uh, I have a little book called The Pilot House as a matter of fact, which uh, doesn't come from this point, but has that same idea that, you know, you want to uh, you want to make sure that things are going as as uh, planned uh, when you're a pilot. You see that they do to take measures. Uh, the first sea point I ever uh, became acquainted with was one I learned in school by a guy named John Maysville, who became a poet laureate of England. And he was writing, um, uh, this point was from 1902, uh, and it has a kind of a, you know, it has a kind of quality of the people who are who are good at engaging in daring do and being very British, mm-hmm. you know. And so it has a kind of a uh, wholesale uh, kind of meter to it. But, uh, it's very, uh, it's kind of a square poem in a way. He says, "I must down to the seas again, to the lonely sea in the sky." And all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. And the wheels kick and the wind song and the white sails shaking and a gray mist on the sea's face and a gray dawn breaking. I must down to the seas again, for the call of the running tide is a wild call and a clear call that may not be denied. And all I ask is a windy day and the white clouds flying and the flung spray and the, the blown spume and the seagulls crying. I must down to the seas again, to the vagrant gypsy life, to the gull's way and the whale's way, where the wind's like a whetted knife. And all I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover, and a quiet sleep and a sweet dream when the long trick's over. I love I love this poem. You might. It's interesting. It's because, just, it's a fun poem, really. It is, it is. And it sounds uh, like something you would hear from Kipling, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just like, if you can imagine being in a gun room um, on one of these uh, ancient ships, you know, and and having an officer stand up and recite Sea Fever, you yeah. know, with the, with the greatest enthusiasm, and then everybody, you know, pounding their cups exactly. of, of rum on the table. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah it's, it, it, it's, it has a wonderful feel to it like that. It, has, it does. It has, has very much that, that feel to it. Yeah, you can do it with your comrades. Uh, there's a lot of camaraderie feeling. Yeah, mm-hmm. Fellow Rover. 
I like that he uh, ends it by calling life a trick. Yes. You know, that's that's something you don't expect. You don't quite expect it because it sounds so uh, it sounds so uh, robust. Mm-hmm. In the end, he says, "Oh, it's just a trick after all." Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Which gets us into the modern feeling of uh, ways of encountering the sea and sailing and traveling uh, and looking at the ocean and contemplating those things. And T.S. Eliot certainly did that. Uh, he has okay. a. You mentioned uh, the, you mentioned Lebanon. Uh, and uh, Phoenicia, uh, he has a part uh, in the Wasteland, which is undoubtedly the most famous 20th century poem in English. Uh, I dare say it's not necessarily the best, uh, but it's. <laughs> I, have, I have my I have my reasons for saying that. But I, uh, he mentions he has a, a a tiny a tiny portion. I think it's maybe the smallest portion of the Wasteland mm. is before called Death by Water. Mm. And he begins by talking about a certain Phoenician, Flavus, Flavus the Phoenician, a fortnight mm. dead, forgot the cry of gulls and the deep sea swell and the profit and loss. A current under sea picked his bones and whispers as he rose and fell. He passed the stages of his age and youth, entering a whirlpool. Gentile or Jew, O oh you who turn the wheel and look to windward, consider Flavus, who was once handsome. And tall as you. Lovely. I think it's, that's a lovely little passage there. Yeah. Uh, but it's also a, you know, it's a warning mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you who think you are, you know, going to have, you know, smooth sailing your whole life. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you. What's, in, what's interesting too is, is that and, and the way he, he uses Flavus in, in, the, in the sense, if you look at the, the perception of the captain, on the sea okay and you have a lot of um a lot of conversation around his character he was very much an iconic character from the very beginning Mm -hmm. i mean go back i mean to to a point where it it was treated say in melville right where the captain and and moby dick was was almost ironic that he he's gone crazy chasing this this white whale all right. And it makes great literature, of course. But you you can't have a crazy captain unless you fully understand what the iconic captain is. Uh, or you don't have a comparison to yeah. to work off of. That's a very good point. So and I find that I find that interesting when they say, you know, because there's always this um, this idea that 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 the captain is is one thing and then the rest of the crew is uh uh you know the secret sharer for example by conrad is another one of those sort of blow your mind kind of fantastical literature uh moments um but that couldn't exist without the concept in the reader's mind of the impenetrable uh statuesque square-jawed captain yes and that's what you would hope to find if you were going on a ship yourself. Uh, exactly. Precisely. Yeah. The summit of his career is a set of poems called Four Quartets mm-hmm. that he wrote uh, during the uh, late 30s and during World War II. The second of these, from 1941, uh, just as um, England was expecting to be uh, bombed by Germany, and it was, 
is a poem that goes back to his childhood, actually, when he's, uh, he, uh, Elliot spent, used to spend summers in uh, Cape Ann, uh, in northern, uh, northeastern Massachusetts. And there are some rocky little islands, uninhabited, uh, called the Dry Salvages. Um, they're just a, a bunch of perilous rocks. Right. And, uh, uh, and so he began thinking about how it is that we try to avert danger, how we try to become, if we have to, to pilot, pilot ourselves towards something. And of course, uh, like uh, Tennyson, <clears throat> uh, Elliot was a was a, a person who was uh, quite religious, actually. Uh, in fact, he almost described himself as a, a, a royalist, a classicist, and uh, a a Roman Catholic. He was actually, <laughs> <laughs> excuse me. Which is kind of ironic because in that period to be both a royalist and a Catholic was sort of, uh, that was against each other. Those were two concepts because. Uh, and, uh, but he, he was quite devout. Uh, as a matter of fact, he uh, spent some time in a monastery. Mm. Uh, but he, he did this because he, he thought, uh, Elliot thought that there, you needed this, this network of, Beliefs. You need a belief system in order to sail your own ship. Mm -hmm. So he did a meditation on these uh, dangerous uh, rocks uh, that you can see from the beach. I understand. I've never seen the dry salvages. I've only seen pictures. There was a uh, article in the Boston Globe uh, that talked, tried to go and see what these rocks are really like, and then think about Elliot in terms of what the rocks meant. And there's a passage from this Boston Globe article that goes, uh, as we lurched towards the rocks and began to hear the smack and suck of the waves at their rough ledges, I was only glumly aware of a kind of age-old lumpiness in reality, a hardness, a juddingness. The roosting cormorants disapproved of us. The seals mm -hmm. raised their heads above the water and regarded us with empty curiosity, these rocks, rocks were concrete, unmetaphorical, and navigationally significant. You couldn't avoid <laughs> them. You didn't want to mess with them. The sea pitches you. The rocks smash you. A state of affairs never quite, in the end, to be accommodated. And then he quotes Eliot. You cannot face it steadily, but this this thing is sure. Yeah. And so yeah. He, in, the, in, dry, in the early passage of the dry side letters, he begins by uh, talking about a river, and then he moves from the river into the sea. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to read a little passage here. He writes, The river is within us, and the sea is all about us. The sea is the land's edge also, the granite into which it reaches, the beaches where it tosses, its hints of earlier and other creation, the starfish, the horseshoe crab, the whale's backbone, the pools where it offers to our curiosity the more delicate algae and the sea anemone. It tosses up our losses, the torn seine, seine is a net, the shatter, shattered lobster pot, the broken oar, and the gear of foreign dead men. The sea has many voices, many gods, and many voices. The salt is on the briar rose, the fog is in the fir trees, the sea howl and the sea yelp are different voices, often together heard, 
the whine in the rigging, the menace and caress of wave that breaks on water, the distant rope in the granite teeth, and the wailing warning from the approaching headland, and all sea voices, and the heaving groaner, groaner is a buoy, mm -hmm. rounded homewards, and the seagull, under the oppression of the silent fog, the tolling bell. So this is quite serious, and it goes on in this this uh, this manner in this particular poem. And of course, what he's doing is he's realizing that uh, uh, we're about to go to war. Right. You know, mm -hmm. so pretty uh, personal things going on in your life. In his case, uh, he was doing teaching, some teaching at that point, giving lectures and so forth. Uh, in order to do that, he'd have to go out and uh, he'd have to go out in public, and uh, people were uh, when the alarm sounded. Of course, people were ducking indoors, hoping to be safe. Of course, many times they were not. Right. Uh, the point after this, uh, Little Gidding, which is a, a really the summit of all of his poetry, uh, prepared by by this sort of sense of menace and danger, uh, is a point in which, in fact, uh, he has a kind of a uh, hallucinogenic experience of, of seeing a, a dead person, uh, a ghost, he recognizes maybe somebody like Philebus, for all we know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he, calls it a, uh, he calls it a compound ghost. That is to say, several identities of people he knew, one, one of which might have been somebody like William Butler Yeats, who was his, right. who was his rival. Uh, and, uh, and you get the sense uh, that the air is smoky, uh, Kind of the way how uh, California has been, uh, but it's like that because bonds have been fallen and the fires have started. And Elliot was uh, a person who actually was um, he volunteered to uh, to go out in the streets to make sure uh, that people could, in fact, uh, go about their business as much as they possibly could during the bombing. Right. So he was putting himself in harm's way in doing that, and, and said, so "This is and." So this uh, reality was already uh, becoming uh, T.S. Eliot's reality. And uh, so the, the, the poem here talks about this in a very general way. And it's curious that he does this by going back to his childhood and saying, mm -hmm. I, remember, I remember this. This is what it was like. But he writes it as a, quite a mature poet at this point. And he mm -hmm. speaks as a little adult. But, he, 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 but, the, but the, the thing that comes to pass, the war, that is to say, uh, is something that he perhaps understood metaphorically uh, as a possibility when he was a child by mm. understanding the nature of danger, uh, mm. that it's in nature. It's built in. It, you know, you might say it's baked in almost uh, right. to mix a metaphor uh, with the ocean. Uh, and he, like, he likes the idea of uh, presenting this to us by talking about uh, the fact that the sea is a dangerous place and we're in it. But the, the interesting thing, too, is, is the, the idea of dry salvages, okay, is there are a lot of dry salvages around. In fact, it's a term that was applied to just an outcropping of rocks essentially in the middle of nowhere. Uh -huh. okay? And you can, find, you can find them on the charts in the Pacific, in the Indian Ocean, um, actually quite a lot um, in outside of uh, – in the in the western uh well the eastern pacific where uh you know singapore and and uh the, the china sea and those areas they have a lot of op outcroppings of of rocks and they're all called dry salvages and uh -huh. 
which is is very interesting because for an Mariner, um, that's like that's like a nightmare, yeah. um, especially especially at night um, when you're sailing because um, it, it's it's unexpected because they're in the middle of nowhere, essentially, essentially, and you're like, oh, okay. Um, I know it's out here somewhere. And then you look up in there and, you know, they're, they're white, almost always white because of the, uh, of the, uh, uh the birds. Uh, I completely forgot the name. Anyway, the, uh, but in any case, they do offer this sort of omniscient danger. Whereas if you're just sort of sailing along in the comfort of a nice, uh, uh, breeze and a, a, a constant swell, and um, a regular wave, you're you're more apt to uh, feel comfortable and not uh, perceive danger in any way. And then suddenly these rocks are there. Okay. So it, it's it's interesting that he does that from a landsman's point of view, yeah. right? Well, it's interesting because he he is a landsman. He he, uh, he he's also saying this, as he says the sea is all about us, uh, which is an interesting thing. And Elliot would. Course, no, but when you say something is all about us, you can take that in several ways. Mm-hmm. You're surrounded by it, but it, it also constitutes something of us, too. Or rather, this is a way of our talking about it, right? It's all about us because it, it, you see, it's in, in a sense our perfect mirror. Because, uh, well, as one uh, 17th century poet puts it, uh, we all have moons and tides. Mm-hmm. I say we're made up of the same material, mainly water. Uh, that uh, that sea is holy. We're both uh, constituted from the same material, and therefore it's about us in a number of ways. Right. Yeah. Well, look, Dave. Thank you very much. I appreciate this so much. Well, uh, it's a fantastic discussion. Well, thanks and so much. We're going to have to have some more of this. And, well, you and I both know that once we get started on these subjects, that we could spend um, eons of time uh, talking about them. Um, I, I appreciate it. I think my audience will appreciate it. And we'll, uh, we'll put out a little list of all the poems and where you could find them, as well as um, your books, which are very important. And... Um, and we can we can go there and uh, people can come in and, and read them and, and have them on board. Um, I do say that one thing about about sailing and, and I, I wanted to mention this before we went is that there are two things that actually move me in a kind of uh, fundamentally and beautiful way. And when you're on the ocean, this experience of on the ocean, the only kind of music that I ever found on the ocean, right, in the, in the middle of the ocean while sailing was opera. That opera was sort of only music that could sort of get up to what you were experiencing in the middle of the ocean, right? And the other aspect of that is poetry, right? is that distillation of, uh, and concentration of the power of the word. And 
that I'm very happy that you bring that to us. And um, you've always done that in your writing. And I'm greatly appreciative of that. Scott, it was a great pleasure. It was my pleasure. All right, buddy. Thanks. We'll talk soon. We will. All right. Bye. Bye. That was a very interesting discussion. And where would people go if they wanted to learn more about David and read some of his work? Um, David's David's books are on Amazon, where everything in the world is. He's there. Um, we'll include some links uh, so that you can go and find his work. And uh, David's a very accessible human being at times, and so it's uh, it'd be kind of interesting. I just I just love the whole conversation. Uh, he and I could could have probably recorded about ten hours. Um, you know, we go we go back to he was a um, he was an instructor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and I was uh, I was a student. I had just come to 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 work on my uh, bachelor's degree at the time, and I'd already been to Vietnam and all the rest of that kind of stuff. I'm sort of getting my life back together, and his support and mentoring had um, had meant a great deal to me at the time, and still does. Yeah, I'll put the links in the episode description. Yeah, just put all those links and the Poetry Foundation link is there yeah, and Yeah. They can everybody can go from there because you can buy the books through the Poetry Foundation. Yeah. So, so that's uh David Rigsby R I G S B E E and you can find his mm-hmm. books of poetry on Amazon and he's on um Black Lawrence Press as well. Yes, as well. Yeah. No, that's great. And uh, so what are we doing for next week's episode? Well, next week I'm going to uh, talk about buying a boat. I'm actually going to recount the adventure of me buying um, my CT-54 and how I bought it, where I bought it, how I bought it, the adventure around it, and um, how I started the process of putting it together and um, a little hopefully some hints for some people that are going out and buying boats and they're going to fix them up and go and I do a uh, I'll do a whole thing on exactly where the first place you should start and what you should do and and just follow the script and at the end of the day you'll end up with a Bristol boat and uh, be ready to sail anywhere in the world. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twang. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. 